This is Allie Henney, and you're listening to Combing the Roots, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. In this episode, we're going to revisit the racial reckoning and talk about its implications for the Black community. Stay tuned! Hey! So it's been a minute. It's been a long minute. I'm not even going to go into how long it's been since I've been on this microphone with you all, but I'm happy to be back in some small way. You know, I jumped bad this summer and thought, oh, I'm going to be able to record. I'm going to be able to have an episode a week out. This is going to be such a great format, blah, 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 blah. And then the pandemic happened, life happened, and it just was like coronavirus was like, no. Now, thankfully, at the time, no one in my family was affected by coronavirus, but still just, you know how the pandemic be. It just, it, even if you don't have the coronavirus, it still affects you in some small way. You're, you're not able to do the things that you set out to do. I don't know if anybody else has experienced that during the pandemic, but that has certainly been me. So I have been slow in getting episodes out. It, it's definitely been on my mind, this podcast. I am thinking about it, if not daily, definitely on a weekly basis. And many conversations I have throughout my week has been, I need to be recording my podcast and I'm not doing that. I have missed you all. I have missed being on the mic. And so hopefully you will be hearing a lot more from me. I will not make any promises as to how often you are going to hear from me, but know that you're going to hear from me. There are some things, thankfully, that are that are turning around. One of the major learning curves for me in this season was dealing with my oldest going to school. And so she's on she's on virtual education right now. And so figuring out a rhythm with that, figuring out just a rhythm in my household that would allow me to be able to do this, to be able to record. There's just been a lot of different things that have pulled at my at my focus and have pulled me away from recording, unfortunately. So I am thankful to, to be back. That's a lot of words to say that I am so thankful to be back on the microphone and I am excited to talk to you today about the racial reckoning and more more specifically, revisiting the racial reckoning. But before I get to that, I want to take a moment to encourage you all to rate and review my podcast and also subscribe. If you're not subscribed, please become a subscriber, but also rate and review my podcast on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way for my podcast to get exposure. And if you're, I think that other platforms also do ratings and reviews. I'm not really sure. I'm an, I'm an Apple person. Um, so that's, that's where I primarily do pretty much all my podcasts. So I'm not very familiar with other platforms, but I think that other platforms have the ability to rate and to leave reviews. And if they do, please do that on your platform. But if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please, please, please rate and review. That gives me the ability to be able to have more exposure for more people to be able to hear what's happening here, to hear my thoughts, to hear my ideas. And definitely if you're in the market of giving five-star reviews, if you're in the market of giving stunning, outstanding reviews, please do that. Of course, 
I'll take your bad reviews. I'll take your one star reviews. I'll take your I hate this podcast and I just listen to it because I hate it and because I hate Allie and I want to say mean things. I'll take those review too because it's it's engagement. So it's it's whatever. But I definitely want, you know, your your four and your five star reviews. Definitely want those and I hope that you will go to Apple Podcasts and you will do that. You will you'll rate and review. So getting into this discussion about the racial reckoning. Several months ago, I had an episode where I talked about the racial reckoning that happened this summer and shared some of my thoughts about it. And so in this episode, I want to revisit the racial reckoning. Specifically, I want to talk some about how I think that it's fallen off. I think that we've, we've kind of have gotten into a lull with this conversation in American society. And I think that that's a problem. Um, I also want to talk about just some of the implications for us as we as we discuss this racial reckoning and as we, we think about and, and imagine what this racial reckoning can look like and, and even maybe perhaps re reigniting the the time that we had. And there's so many other, it's a, it's a multivalent issue. And so there's so many things that I want to get into. And this will probably be a two part episode. But let me go ahead and begin. So just in case you missed it, let me talk just a little bit about the racial reckoning. So we can kind of, oh, let me let me level set. I think that that's a good word. I, I learned that word a few months ago. And I'm like, that's a good word, level set. Whenever you make sure that everybody is up to speed and at the same level with their knowledge. So this past summer, but really, I say summer, but really it was more like the spring into the summer. There was a heightened sense of awareness of the racial injustices that were taking place in our society society. With the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, with the revelation of the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and so many others uh, that Elijah McClain, he had been murdered months and months before, sometime in 2019, but his murder was revealed. There's so many people, there's so many names that I, that I can't even remember, but there were so many people who were killed over the course of the spring and the summer and their deaths came to light and people started recognizing oh we're in the middle of an, of two pandemics the racial pandemic has been going on for a long time but people sort of put together for the first time it seems that wow racism is racism is is an epidemic in our society and it's a problem and I think that the pandemic was something that allowed people to be able to see in a way they couldn't you couldn't turn away from it you know we were we were all in our homes we were all under at that time a lot of a lot of COVID precautions and at the time of this recording it seems like a lot of stuff is shutting down and maybe by the time that you hear it hear this recording um you're also going to be in the middle of different of different shutdowns and stuff but we were in a time whenever it was it was almost entirely inescapable and everybody was on social media everybody was on tv everyone was on various channels and various streams in our society talking about the race issue for the most part what at least what i saw a lot of people were hearing about it and were like oh my goodness and there's you have always this this gasp that that white people do where it's like I just learned that there was racism today. Now this joint's been going on for, for forever, for, for like 400 years, but they just discovered it today. And it's like, oh my goodness, I discovered this, I discovered this thing today. And so now I need to, I need to talk about it and need to, I need to tell other people about it. And 
And that is a whole other discussion, but it's something that we, we had this, this heightened conversation, right? You know, we had this, this heightened time where people had so much awareness of the injustices that were happening. And it was a conversation that you could almost not escape. And like I said, for the most part, there were people that were sort of just, just now discovering it. And then people like me who've been, we've been talking our head off about this for, for years, for, for decades, even some folks have been talking our heads off about this thing. We sort of had our moment where people were like, oh, listen to this person. You know, there were, there were books that were, that had been out for a year or better that or better I think some some of the books had even been out for two and three years that made the New York Times bestseller list there was a time in June I think like the first three or four weeks the first three weeks or maybe even the entire month of June the New York Times bestseller list the top 10 in the New York Times bestseller list were all books on race and these a lot of these books were books that have been around for a long time they didn't just come out but people were like oh racism okay let me go and read these books that people a lot of people have been recommending some of them have been books that I have been recommending for as long as they had been out um but people were like let's let's get out here and so it became it catapulted into the national into the national consciousness now of course there were people who had something to say about it and who were not as willing to learn and not as willing to receive information and to receive correction and to receive all the things that we would hope that they would want to receive and there was some pushback and there were some people who are going to cling to their racism and they're going to cling to it and you're going to have to pry it out of their cold dead hands and so there was a lot of that out there too so there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of people as it always goes where you have people who are like hey yeah this is a thing and then you have the brand new people who are like oh my gosh I can't believe it's a thing and then you have the people who are like this isn't a thing and so you have the, the first two groups arguing with the latter group and it just is a and it's just a whole mess but it but it but the conversation comes up and people start to learn and you get the the oh promise me's from from white folks in your dms who you know oh my goodness this is so horrible oh i'm just i'm gonna change i'm gonna make sure i'm gonna speak out and whatever and a small percentage of those people do they they do commit their 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 lives they do commit their their existence from that point forward to making sure that they are examining themselves and checking others but for the most part it is a lot of empty sentiment and I hate to say that I really I really hate to say that it's something that I kind of had hoped wouldn't happen this time because it seemed like something was ha was happening it seemed like there was a shift it seemed like like something was happening but it seemed like at the same time you know once once the the initial heat was off once the protests had happened once you once you know different things had, had started to shift this the the attention started to shift now to be fair we are in the middle of a pandemic and we also started to see a surge toward the end of the summer and we've seen multiple surges in different in different places not every place has surged at the same time and so the conversation has had to shift a little bit from the racism pandemic to the coronavirus pandemic at the same time you can still pivot to racism even within coronavirus because it's still black people and and indigenous people and and brown people other people of color who are who are dying from this virus at, at such a disproportional rate and there are so many inequities that it's easy to pivot to race really from anything but but especially when we start talking about the pandemic but it's understandable you know the pandemic was ha is going on still and 
that would take attention. And the same with the election. We, as August rolled around, we had the different conventions um, from the from the two major political parties. And so, of course, the, the conventions and the discussion at the conventions and the discussion of the candidates, that's something that was going to take front and center. And race did play into some of the discussion there. The race played into some of the discussion about who the presidential, vice presidential nominee would be rather um there was that that played into the the conversation of course we we got Kamala Harris um the the conversation played into some different facets of the presidential politics for sure there were questions at the debates that we had about about race but for me sometimes those questions kind of felt ornamental and kind of some of the discussion felt ornamental and I won't get too deep into that but you know there certainly there certainly are things that we can mark out and we could say well you know, if this if this thing hadn't happened this summer, there might not have been the questions about race that there had been at the presidential debate. If we hadn't have had this moment of racial reckoning this summer, there might not have been some of the gestures, some of the symbolic gestures from from things like the NFL and the NBA and and the Major League Baseball and 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 hockey and whatever. We might not have seen some of those things. There there might be certain moments that wouldn't have happened in our in our culture the way that they would have happened if they if we had not been at this backdrop of the racial reckoning. So I think that there's something to be said about that. Yet at the same time, I listen to this, I, I see all of these things and I can't help but feel just a little bit jaded because it's like, well, you know, the conversation is not at the same level that it was just in, in our in our general discourse. It's, it's not there in the way that it was before. Now, of course, to be fair, to be reasonable, we the to port to protest in the streets for you know hundreds of days for a year for whatever there gets to be like just some practicalities to it where people have to have to keep living their lives and most people's lives are not centered on dismantling racism it's not their lives aren't centered on anti-racism work and so i don't want to seem unduly or unnecessarily focused on, well, you know, the conversation has to just be at this certain level. It has to just be at the same level that it's always been. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be so focused on that, right? Where it's just like, oh, well, it has to, the conversation, everybody has to be out in the street protesting. Everybody has to be on Facebook talking about it. It has to be all anyone can talk about on the news or, or in any other type of media type setting. That's not what I'm saying. But whenever I say that the racial reckoning has has sort of fallen off, it sort of has fallen by the wayside, what I mean is that I think that, as I said, there are things that that rightly have replaced it in, in the national conversation. I shouldn't say have rightly replaced it. That's not exactly what I want to say. But what I mean is there are other conversations that we've needed to have also. There are other things that we've needed to talk about also. But I can't help but feel a little bit I'm not sure what the word to use is. I, I guess put out maybe is what I want to say. Is that I can't help but feel a little bit put out because it seems like 
everything, all of the, all of the bold declarations that people made this summer, all of the book buying that people, that people did, all of the, I mean, I still have books that I was like, oh yeah, I need to send to people. I still, I, I still have books I need to send to people. Um, but all the book buying that people did, all the, all the coffees that people had or virtual coffees, hopefully that people were having, it seems like that part of the conversation has died out. And I don't think that, that we can say, well, that part of the conversation, that's really like an immature part of the conversation. So why do we want to keep that going? It's not that I want to stay at that part of the conversation. It's that I don't think that the conversation has evolved from there. I want to talk about this a little bit more in the next segment. segment I talked about last summer's racial reckoning and I talked about some of the evolution of that conversation specifically I talked about how I felt like that conversation sort of has fallen off over the last several months so in this segment I want to talk a little bit more about how the conversation has evolved and what exactly the evolution of this conversation means for black people Something that I've observed over the years is that the race conversation in America often happens in cycles and waves. And unfortunately, these cycles and waves are often centered upon Black people having some sort of collective traumatic experience. So for example, the latest racial reckoning, the, what we call, the, what we've sort of started to refer as the, as the racial reckoning this summer, it started with the public murder of Ahmaud Arbery. It started with watching this man be lynched on our phones. It started with that. And then it went to finding out about Breonna Taylor's death. And it went to seeing Christian Cooper being assailed by the white woman in the in Central, in Central Park, being threatened to have the, the police called on her in Central Park. And then also on the same day, finding out about the murder of George Floyd. It, it It's always this cataclysmic type of event that it takes for the conversation to be reignited. And I'm talking, you know, in the in the last five or six years, it's taken this type of thing happening. It's taken watching a black person literally take their last breaths on our devices for some people to have a modicum of conscience about them that for their for their conscience to to feel pricked by it I don't even know how to describe it it's it's gross honestly I think it's I think it's a huge problem that it takes that for it takes something just so so ugly and horrific as those things that I mentioned for people to feel mobilized to fight racial injustice. And the, and the unfortunate part about it is it happens inside. The reason why I call it cycles and waves is that it happens in cycles and waves is that people will get indignant about stuff. I never say people, I mean, it's everybody, but white people especially will get indignant about something that happened in society. And that indignation lasts for a few weeks 
maybe a couple of months, there are maybe a few small strides that are made. And then it's just like, it, it fades away. All of the, all of the righteous indignation and everything else fades away. And I really have a problem with that because the implication for that is that black people have to endure trauma in order for us to experience any kind of progress in this nation in any kind of progress in terms of race in this nation and that just shouldn't be now i want to talk about i want to imagine what it would look like for that to not be the case and that will likely be part two of this episode but for right now i i want to park here and i want to talk about the problem that i have with that the fact that it takes black people experiencing collective trauma and walking out a collective grief process in front of the entire nation, I just think that that is extremely humiliating. I think that that's something, it doesn't benefit us to do that. It doesn't benefit us to have to experience that. Yet that is the way that it is. And there is a gross amount of injustice in that. And so that's something that I, I, I want to acknowledge. I think it is, it is so important to acknowledge. And so then even with that, in conjunction with that, we have to acknowledge that it's not Black people's responsibility to keep the conversation going. When I say that it's not our responsibility to keep the conversation going, I don't mean that we shouldn't lead the conversation. What I mean is that I don't think that we need to put ourselves out there as a sacrificial lamb for this conversation. We shouldn't have to sacrifice our our health, our mental health, our well-being just to get people to acknowledge the fact that we have the right to exist. I don't think that that in the long run plays very well for us. I think that white people that there is an impetus on them to collect their own people. They need to learn from us. They need to listen to us. They need to follow our, our guidance. They need to follow the things that we say that we want to dictate about our own liberty. But at the end of the day, they have to collect their people. They have to, they need to talk to their own folks and they need to get their own folks to act right. And I just don't think that it is fit for us to be out here laying ourselves down in such a way that we, that it's, it's another form of assault, really. Whenever we put ourselves out there in such a way, we watch the assault of black bodies on our phones, on our TV screens, we hear about it in the news, and then we lay ourselves out there in such a way as to be assaulted by white people in, in, a, in a psychological sense, if not a physical sense, in a psychological sense, where we are constantly having to cater to their sense of well-being, where we're having to cater to their educational needs, where we're having to, to cater in a way that they can figure out how to exist in every other facet of society but they can't figure out how to not be racist for me that dog doesn't hunt like it is that dog don't hunt we have got to figure out a way to be able to have this conversation to be able to lead this conversation without it 
essentially killing us. Um, you know, there's a, there's the the story that we often hear about Dr. King about how at his autopsy, the the doctor that performed, I think it was his autopsy or maybe was working on him after he gotten shot. I don't remember the exact circumstances, but they talk about how he was a man, he was 39 years old whenever he was assassinated, but he had the heart of a 60-year-old. And that's that's the story that constantly gets put out there. And we talk about the the stress. We talk about the toll that racism, it's called weathering is, is actually what this what this effect is called. That that just the enduring systemic racism, it has an effect on us. Well think about it whenever think about the effect that if you're somebody who's out here who is speaking about racism, who's educating, who's talking to to your white friends, your white colleagues, the white people, you're yelling at the void on social media, whatever whatever lane you're occupying in this work. Think about the the emotional toll that that it starts to take on you after a while. I mean, there's so many times whenever I have had to, whenever other friends have had to step away from doing the work, where we've had to step away from social media, where we've had to, where we've had to mute certain channels, where we've had to do a lot of different things just to be able to feel like we could survive and just to attend to our own needs and attend to our own, our own physical, our own psychological, our own spiritual needs. And so I think that we sometimes put ourselves in the position where we rightly want to take the reins of our own liberation. And I don't think that's ever anything that we that we cede to other people that we say, well, okay, here, you dictate to us what it means to be free. I don't think that that's something that we, that's never ground that we cede. But sometimes I think that we don't do a good job of saying, of recognizing what battle is our battle. And so sometimes we get caught up, I think, as a people. Now, you know, don't take this. If it, if it, if it don't apply, move on by. But I think that sometimes black people, I think that we, that we, that, that not all of us, but a lot of us move into the, move into spaces that really aren't for us to be operating in. We move into lanes and we're driving in lanes that really are not for us because we, because we want to see the work. And I think especially black women, we want to, we want to, we, we, feel this need to, to give birth to our freedom, to give birth to our liberation, that we do so in ways that aren't always healthy and they're not, and they're not always balanced. And that's another conversation for another day. But I make that point to, to get to this point that I think that as we talk about the conversation falling off, we need to not take an undue level of responsibility for the conversation falling off. It's not falling off because black people haven't been out here talking about it enough. It hasn't fallen off because black people haven't been doing enough and saying enough and being enough and being whatever the heck enough. Like we, that's not, that's not what's happening. The conversation has fallen off because first of all, that's just the way that it works. That's the way, that's just the way that whiteness works. That's the way that our society works. We do not have attention for, nor do we have object permanence for certain issues, certain things that happen because we are in the information age and we are being inundated. We are being inundated with information all the time. And so it's hard to keep track of everything that happens. You know, I think about it just, you know, from a, from a perspective that, that doesn't really have anything to do with race as much as it's just, you know, of, as of life. I think about, you know, different people 
on Twitter. Like there's times, um, you know, like I'm on, I'm on Twitter and there's so many different con- controversies and different things, different people that Black Twitter is like, oh, this person did this, this person's trash, like this person, blah, 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 blah. And we forget like like there are times whenever I forget that certain people are canceled or like the you know, people will be talking about like this event this thing that happened and I'll be like wow I forgot all about that I forgot that that person showed out like that I forgot that that person that we were that we were dragging that person months ago because there's just so much information and it is hard to keep track of who did what to whom when where and why and so that's just that's just that, that and that is something that doesn't really have anything to do with whiteness it just has to do with the age that we're in but whenever we factor whiteness into it, um, it's this, when we factor whiteness, when we factor white saviorism, all these kind of different toxic aspects of whiteness into it, it means that people aren't going to pay attention to an issue unless it's in their face, unless they, unless it is unavoidable. And frankly, we don't have the juice to constantly be out here. Hey, remember that racism is a thing that exists and you should do something about it. We just don't, we just don't have the juice to be able to do that. And so one of the un, very unfortunate consequences, I can't even call it an unintended consequence, because I think it's just, it's the way the white supremacy works. I, I think that it's, it's not a bug, it's a feature, is that it necessitates for, it necessitates us going through trauma to in order for people to have some sort of sense of our humanity and some sort of sense of hey there is an issue like there's there's a problem like hey there there's a there's a real problem here that needs to be fixed and so like white folks just think that because you know they they got they went out and marched in the street for for a couple of weeks and because they bought a book they and they and they had a conversation with their with their racist grandpa a lot of them think that 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 they did that, that it's like a thing that they that they do rather than it being a thing that they embody and so a lot of them don't get that racism the anti-racism rather is something that you have to embody and it has to be part of your whole self just like for us our liberation it has to be something that is part of our whole self otherwise we will start to get into that sunken place we will start to sink back we will start to we will we will start to move toward white supremacy if we are not actively thinking about actively questioning the systems active actively questioning questioning the things the narratives the the ideas that we are being presented with we have the ability to to sink back and to and to get down into that sunken place and to not know what's up not to not to evolve ourselves and I think that 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 aspect of of evolution in the conversation is something that is so important for us I think that it's important for I think it's important for white people it's important for them to learn how to embody anti-racism but for us for us as a people we have to start to think about how to have the conversation in a way that we are able to take our agency back that instead of being reactive to what's happening in society we need to be able to find a way to be proactive and I say that and that's not don't 
hear that as a rebuke at all. That's that's not a that's not a put down. I said rebuke. That's like a super like church person word. I didn't mean to sound like super like church in there. Oh, like a rebuke. Um, but it, I don't mean that you know as shade. Like I don't mean that as well. You know we're not doing enough. Like we gotta imagine. We gotta like whatever. I'm not saying it like that. What I'm saying is. What I'm saying is that we that that we often only are able to react because we are we experience such an assault we we experience such so much oppression that we're that it's like it's like this this cycle of of having to we're having to understand the ways in which we are being oppressed in society. And we have to work to undo the conditioning that tells us that we are inferior, that tells us that we that we lack, or that tells us all sorts of, of things that aren't true about us. We're having to do that work. And then we're also having to do the work of healing from the trauma that we've experienced. And so then whenever something else big comes up like somebody whenever we see a person dying on our phone screen we then have to mitigate the trauma from that and there's so much that happens that that oppression steals our imagination it steals the ability for us to be able to not be operating in a crisis mode or in a in a maintenance and rebuilding mode from a crisis and I think that that is especially that has been especially true of almost the last decade I think that that I can speak particularly as as a millennial for my generation I think that we have had to deal with with that in a way um that I won't say is like in any way unique from any other any other generation or any other time, but I think that that's something that we just that we've had to deal with, and we've had to deal with it in a way that it's because a lot of especially during the pandemic, but a lot of our social networks, a lot of our a lot of our life is lived in the public square of social media. That we that that it's not just our community that we live in it's not just like our geophysical location that we have to be concerned about injustice in we have access to and knowledge of the injustices that are taking place in not just in our own town not just in our own city not even just in our own country in in our in the whole world we have we have access to and we can and we can learn about and hear about and read about the different ways that people who look like us are being are being oppressed and so whenever we do that there's there's almost a I think that a lot of us feel a sense of it, it's just it's, it's overwhelming and so we want to we, we want to try to fight in every single battle we want to try to be in in every single place and trying to and trying to take care of it or some of us you know maybe that's like like is you, you talk about fight flight freeze or fawn I think some of us you know, fight and so we're there and we and we're and we're in every single battle there are some of us that 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 flight that flee that we're like that some of us that get into that flight um you talk about fight and you have flight where people are just like okay I'm just gonna like like gonna just be like okay I'm gonna run away from it like I'm just and we're just gonna I'm just gonna you know, watch movies or whatever and then and there's some of us that, that freeze that is just like 
I don't know, I don't know what to do and I don't know what to do. And, and, and you just end up in a, in a place, uh, can end up in a place of despair or just a place of like, I have no idea what to do. So I'm just not going to do anything about it at all. I'm just not even going to acknowledge it. Or you get into to a fawn and, and I could talk about that, um, a little bit more. Um, but, but fawning essentially is like where, where it gets, where it becomes this place, I think uh, in this in this instance also I'll place fawning as where it sort of becomes okay like white supremacy is a thing but like okay I like let me just you know let like if I just become a good black person if I just if I if I if I somehow am able to impress my oppressors then I will stop being oppressed and we just get into some of these we end up in some of these places some of these um we, we end up in some of these rhythms in our lives that can just be so unhealthy and can be so, so difficult for us that whenever I say then, you know, it's not on us to keep, to keep the conversation going and that it's on, and that it's on them to collect their own people, that sometimes it can be difficult to, to, to think beyond just like if, if, I'm, if I'm not leading the conversation, then who is? And I think that we that we have to imagine what it means to have this conversation in a way to, to fight for our freedom in a way that doesn't to diminish from us, but builds us up and is healthy. So I want to talk about that a little bit more in the next segment. In the last segment, I talked about revisiting the racial reckoning and what its implications are for Black people. In this segment, very briefly, I want us to use our imaginations. In fact, this segment is kind of a setup for the second part of this episode uh, talking about the racial reckoning in which I want for us to be able to imagine what it would look like for black folks to be able to fight for our freedom and to be able to do so without having to respond to trauma, to be able to, to take a proactive stance in in dealing with racism and then hopefully even being able to imagine a world where there isn't racism or where racism is greatly minimized. I really believe that racism steals our imaginations. It steals our collective imaginations as Black people. We do so much to avoid being oppressed. We do so much thinking about our oppression. We do so much thinking about how we can decolonize our minds, how we can heal from the, how we can heal from the trauma. We do so much to recognize the trauma that we've been through. And we do so much to alert others within our community, but also people outside of our community to the evils and the results of racism. We do that so much that often we don't have the opportunity to think beyond that. So we don't have the opportunity to think 
just about like the immediate future and what do we do? What do we do? How do we advocate for ourselves without having to react to something that's happened? Um, so we don't, we don't have the ability to do, to do that. And it's not because I remember I say that we don't have the ability to do it. I don't mean that we literally don't possess the ability to do it. I mean that racism is so oppressive that it steals that ability. To, it steals that from us. The next thing is that we don't really even have the ability often to imagine the future future. So not just like the near present future, but the future future. What would a world without racism look like? Or what would a world with minimal racism look like? What does liberation actually mean? And what does liberation actually look like for us? We frankly don't often get the opportunity to to dream in that respect. And there are some of us, there are people, I don't want to say that, that it's black people categorically that, that don't get to do this. There are people who have touched that, who, who touch that in a sense but even I think that there's a way that that even sometimes that can be carried that it is almost out of touch with reality because the reality is that we're still oppressed and I think that sometimes we we have people who are so focused on our liberation that they fail to build the bridge from where we're at now to where they want us to be like there's a like there's a whole path that we as a people have to walk and sometimes I think that that path can be kind of foggy and then for the people who are activists in the moment and who are taking care of the moment often the focus becomes just on the moment that we're in that we don't really see the future we have trouble being able to see and to touch and to imagine the future and so I think that it's important for us to start to use our imagination and you know I don't have the capacity and I don't have the time in this episode and certainly just you know I don't feel like I feel like that it would take it would take many episodes of this podcast to unpack a future for black people and to think about what the future for black people looks like. It's something that I that I want to do. I have it um, on on it's not really a vision board. It's just kind of something that's like a, a long term things that I want to do. I want to start to think in those terms. But unfortunately, the current oppression, like I said, it, it takes those opportunities to think and to dream away. But as we think about just the near future, as we think about we're going into a new presidential administration, what would it look like for us to start to push the issue of race without having to respond to national trauma? And I'm going to get into this more in the next episode, but I think that we should take advantage of our political situation in the United States. I think we should take that we should that we should take advantage of the fact that we are coming out of a horribly racist, a, a very difficult administration. This has been a very difficult four years. It's not over yet. There's some people, if they have their say, it wouldn't be over. But I'm just believing that it's going to be over and that Joe Biden is the president and that he will be the president come January 20th, 2021. And so we have the opportunity and not to sound overly optimistic and not to just be like, oh, this is going to be pie in the sky and it's going to be so great and racism is going to be over. But to be realistic, but at the same time to have hope. I want us to start to look toward this new administration with hope. 
Now, there are some problems with that, and I will talk about those in the next episode. But for now, I think that we should start to position ourselves, and we should start to think, what does it look like for us as a community to become more active, more politically active, more more socially active? Not that we aren't already, but what would it look like for us to come together in a way that is unprecedented, using the social networks, using all the things that we have at our disposal now, all the tools that we have at our disposal, to be able to affect broader change. You'll have to stay tuned to the next episode to hear what else I'm thinking about. Peace. This has been Combing the Roots. Special thanks to producer Joshua Heath and executive producers Tyler Burns and Bo York. Catch up with what I'm doing on these internet streets by visiting AllieHenny.com. There you'll be able to connect to my Twitter feed, my Instagram, and my Facebook writer's page. Combing the Roots is powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Allie Henny. Peace. Peace.